Good evening. My name is uh, Tandigam Kandawire. I'm a professor here in, in the Department of International Development. Uh, gives me great pleasure on behalf of, of, of my department and the, and the International Growth Center to welcome the Minister for International, for the Swedish Minister for International Development Cooperation, Ms. Gunilla Carlson. Uh, Ms. Carlson has been a member of the Swedish Parliament since 2002, and she's a deputy chairperson of the Moderate Party, which is the, the main party in the ruling coalition. She has served as a member of the European Parliament since 1995 up to 2002. As you know, Sweden has been a, a leading player in in the development cooperation uh, field. It's one of the few countries in the world that has met its uh, international target of 0.07% of its GDP in, as aid. In fact, it's close to 1% of GDP to aid. And, uh, and it's fair to say, I think, without much contradiction, that Sweden has been a powerful moral force in the debates about uh, international cooperation and also on the debates about the nature of international cooperation. So it's a really great pleasure for me to have uh, the minister here. Her theme is on why human rights and democracy are critical to, for overcoming poverty, and uh, which is obviously a very topical subject. Uh, the, uh, the arrangement is she will speak for 30 minutes, and then there'll be time for questions. So once again, let me let's welcome Ms. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Professor Makandavire. Ladies and gentlemen, friends, uh, the London School of Economics reputation for academic excellence and intellectual rigor is well known and well deserved. So I feel honored to be able to share some of my thoughts on development cooperation, human rights, and democracy with such a highly qualified audience. It is, of course, impossible to address the relationship between development, democracy, and human rights without mentioning the events currently unfolding in what is referred in Brussels to the southern neighborhood. As Swedish Minister for International Development Cooperation, I have met many individuals whose commitment to freedom leads them to stand up for democratic values and human rights even in times of extreme difficulty and danger. The popular uprisings in the Middle East and North Africa are an unprecedented testimony to the aspirations of the people in the region. Aspirations to achieve respect for human rights, freedom and democracy, as well as development and growth. The uprisings serve as a reminder to us all that human rights are universal rights. I will not hide from you that it sometimes makes me ill at ease to hear people hint at the existence of a contradiction between democracy and development or between human rights and development. But surely some people will tell me if you have to choose between food for your family and the right to vote, you will go for the food. This line of argument is of course pure nonsense. There is no reason to believe that material well-being and political rights should somehow be mutually exclusive. All available evidence points 
to the contrary. What's more, this is exactly the kind of argument fed to us by autocratic leaders clinging on to power and asking for our support in the name of stability. Yes, they will tell the donors, we have not yet the democracy in the Western sense of the word, but our society is not really ready. You must give us time to develop. First, we must feed our people. The second line of defense for maintaining restrictions on civil liberties will often consist of comments referring to the safeguarding of fundamental human rights as a purely Western concept ill-suited to harsh realities of the country in question. What strikes me in, is the apparent willingness of some people in the West to accept this line of reasoning. These are the very people who will tell you that we have to be careful about stressing human rights too forcefully in the developing world. Such an emphasis can be counterproductive, we are told, and we should avoid being seen as lecturing other countries. Frequently, it is pointed out that due to Europe's colonial past, we have limited credibility when it comes to human rights. Let me be very clear about this. I have never encountered a single human rights defender in Africa who has urged me to be less vocal about human rights or told me that free speech or freedom of assembly are European concepts alien to the African continent. We have a clear moral obligation to be on the side of individuals who are persecuted for their political opinions. Buying into the false logic of the governments that send these courageous men and women to jail for their political views should be out of the question. Standing up for true values of Europe means being on the side of the oppressed, not the oppressors. The democratic upheavals are changing in the political landscape. Some will say that this represents an end to stability. This is plain wrong. As if an undemocratic regime such as the one run by Colonel Gaddafi in Libya could somehow be said to represent something inherently stable. What we are witnessing now is a process that will hopefully lead to conditions being put in place for true stability, the kind of stability that can only be associated with free societies. We have an obligation to support those who risk their lives fighting for values that we share and most of the time takes for granted. The events in North Africa therefore represents a strong call to governments and donors working with and truly committed to democracy and human rights. What we see today is a result of brave people's initiative with limited or no external support. In Tunisia and Egypt, people have managed to get rid of their authoritarian regimes themselves with relatively peaceful means. This deserves our admiration and respect. The events in North Africa show how access to modern information and communication technology and social media can create new opportunities for citizens to increase their influence and demand accountability from their leaders. Information communication technology tools also provide us with the potential to modernize our development efforts in a very substantial way. 
These tools can be used, not least, to promote the cause of democracy and human rights, providing independent source of information, holding leaders accountable to their citizens, serving as a means to connect citizens both from across the country and in diaspora communities, and quickly and relatively safely exposing corruption. To me, these are liberation technologies, symbols of a world that has irreversibly changed. The number of internet users in the world have doubled between 2005 and 2010 and has now passed the two billion mark. However, the digital divide between developed and developing countries looms large, 71% versus 21% of the population are online. Exploring and investing in ICT is a key tool for increased openness and transparency worldwide. Civil society organizations and defenders of human rights need wireless, net neutral systems and access to be able to reach out. Some countries limit or prohibit their citizens' access to the internet. These are the internet's black holes. In most of these countries, it is a criminal offense to express oneself via the internet and the persecution of reform-minded people on the internet is growing. One of the main challenges is to identify how democratic activists can be brought to the forefront of our support, exploring ways to make use of innovative tools that are relevant for the initial stage of democratic change and transition. While debate in the international community of democratic governments has largely focused on macro-level questions of diplomacy and political dialogue, much remains to be done in the fine-tuning democracy assistance projects at the micro-level. History has also shown that the timeliness of international response can be a critical factor in tipping the balance in favor of democratic reforms. As a complement to traditional democracy assistance, the Swedish government has therefore launched a special initiative for democratization and freedom of expression. This initiative provides an opportunity to rapidly support human rights activists and agents for democratic change in new and more direct ways, not least so as to take advantage of unexpected opportunities for democratic change. A few weeks ago, I invited researchers, internet activists, and ICT entrepreneurs to a meeting in Stockholm for discussions on how ICT can be used to create freedom and how our development aid can be adjusted to the reality we see today. I will meet them on Thursday to deepen the discussion on how our aid efforts could be designed to support digi digital democratization and democratic democratic digitalization as efficiently and effectively as possible. Friends, for me, democracy is about change. Human rights are about freedom. And I would like to see change for freedom in the world. Change for freedom is also the name of the Swedish policy on democracy and human rights in Swedish International Development Cooperation adopted last year. 
In our policy, three main issues are emphasised. One, the importance of support to democracy and human rights for poverty reduction. Two, the importance of pluralism as a starting point for socio-economic development. And three, transparency as a tool for democratisation. Democratisation and freedom are key aspects of development and the rights perspective needs to be integrated in all our development cooperation efforts. Together with the rule of law, respect for civil and political rights is crucial in building functioning democracies and for reducing poverty in all its dimensions. Because poverty is not just lack of material resources. It is a lack of power, opportunities and security. It is a lack of influence over one's own life. I would like to highlight this position as an important starting point for Swedish ambitions for future international development cooperation in general, and more specifically for support to democracy and human rights. When people living in poverty are denied their right to speak freely, to influence or change their living conditions, or the destiny of their communities and countries, it is a sign of poverty. More freedom and increased democracy is therefore in itself poverty reduction. For us, this means that the fight against poverty must be conducted with both resources and values. The multidimensioned understanding of poverty is shared by the European Union as a whole, as stated in the EU policy consensus on development from 2005. It is of the utmost importance that to make sure that this is also well reflected in present and future EU policy development efforts and implementation. I am convinced that democratic societies have the best potential to promote sustainable growth and development. We know that safeguarding the rule of law and equality before the law, upholding the ground, ro ground rules of market economy, including the protection of property rights and contra contractual freedom, protecting free media and freedom of expression, all create conditions conducive to economic growth. Everyone should have the right to meet and organize freely, as well as enjoying safety and security to exercise these rights. Democratic development is more sustainable when combined with social development in which all individuals in society are included, women and men. Gender equality is a prerequisite for long-term democratic development. Women and men, girls and boys, must have equal rights and opportunities to shape their lives and to influence society. Societies cannot afford to exclude half of their population. Support to democracy and human rights is not only an end in itself, it's also a means of increasing aid effectiveness and strengthening the fight against corruption. Free and independent media, open and transparent government, functioning institutions and a pluralistic civil society are absolutely vital to achieve true democracy. These components are cornerstones of a modern development corporation that takes accountability seriously. Openness and transparency enhance opportunities for all citizens to monitor budgets and government's performance. We know that increased accountability means that states generally better deliver what citizens expect. 
And in the long run, to be relevant and sustainable, democracies must deliver in terms of good governance. But democracies also need to deliver on their promises and implement decisions as well as making the democratic political system work. I have followed the openness initiative of the British government with great interest and together in the EU, we, Andrew Mitchell and I, are now striving for an EU aid transparency guarantee. The theme of my address, why human rights and democracy are critical to overcome poverty, let me note that the Arab Human Development Report in 2002 prophetically identified three main reasons for poverty in the Middle East and North Africa region. One, lack of democracy. Two, poor education. Three, women's subordinated position. In 2004, the report in particular highlighted the link between lack of freedom and lack of development in the region. Clearly, it is in the intersection between democratization and economic development that the prospects for development in the Middle East and North Africa are to be found. While many have benefited from economic growth, and as states invest in fulfilling economic and social rights like education, health, electricity, water housing, and civil and political rights, there will be no real development. To create true democracy and development in the Middle East and North Africa region, pluralism must be recognized socially, politically, religiously, between modern and traditional structures, young and old, different social classes, and different political ideas. Finally, an important lesson from recent events in the role of social media, new information, and communication technologies. Social media, like Facebook, Twitter, text messages and blogs have created a space for constant conversation between large groups of people. Social media also shows that civil society is created by individuals and that ICT provides important tools for people to realize their democratic aspirations. The use of social media has given courage and mobilized a whole continent in the struggle for democracy. The European experiences of peaceful transitions from dictatorships to democracy is a source of inspiration for democratic movements and individuals in authoritarian states all over the world today. For this reason, Europe bears a particular responsibility to contribute to building democracy elsewhere in the light of its own experiences. In fact, we are morally obliged to do so by our own history. It is my firm belief that the political dimension of international development cooperation should be guided by this moral obligation. The Swedish approach is not only to politically pursue the democracy and human rights agenda worldwide, but also to make sure that we apply a development approach to these issues. Giving priority to democracy and development corporations means recognizing the political dimension of development cooperation. Thank you for your patience. Thank you very much. Uh, this is a very wide-ranging uh, presentation, and um, so the floor is open. 
questions and comments and yeah. Who starts? Or should I start? No. Yeah, go ahead. Thank you. You mentioned um, some strong points about the use of technology and the importance of transparency, which I'd absolutely agree with. I, I imagine everybody in this room would. I wondered if you could talk a little bit about accountability and how we need to strengthen accountability mechanisms so that people living in developing countries can hold their governments to account. On that issue, you mentioned Europe's moral responsibility, I think was your phrase. Could you say whether the Swedish government will sign up to the optional protocol to the International Covenant on Economic, Social and Cultural Rights as an example to other countries in the world? Or I can start, I can yeah, start yeah, with yeah, this yeah. one. If it's okay, Professor? Yeah, sure. Yeah? Mm -hmm. Good, thank you. Uh, well, about accountability uh, and how um, this, I, I think, first, when it comes to hold governments accountable for the developments in their country, I think we as donors in our political dialogue must also take our responsibility and be accountable both for the poor people and also for our own um, taxpayers. I used to say I have a double responsibility to see that I fulfill the Swedish taxpayers' ambitions with a very high development assistance as percent of GDP, more than 1% actually, uh, and also to see that the poor people have benefit from that kind of money and that the money is spent well and making a change in their, their lives. But when it comes also to accountability in economic terms, I think that the new information and communication technologies gives us a totally new opportunity to really make it possible for both recipients and donors, individuals, to scrutinizing and follow the money. Uh, and that's why we, I'm so keen on this transparency initiative in the EU and also what Andrew Mitchell has, has uh, done here in the UK as well as what we already have started in Sweden to have much more of transparency to foster accountability. Uh, and this is uh, what I really try to, to achieve in my everyday's mission, <laughs> to be accountable and to see that I live up to the promises I've done, but also to put the same uh, obligations to those governments that I do have to work with uh, in, in the recipient countries. And about signing the protocol, Sweden, I now put the political and civil rights in the forefront, but of course we have also been committed to the economic, social and cultural rights. Uh, they are universal and they are, you, you can't divide between them. But I think that sometimes, if you look to the MDGs and so on, I think that's a very statistic point of looking at developments. I mean, if you are not hungry any longer, are you then free? You see what I mean? So that's why I think it's good for us in Europe to work through our development cooperation and put the political and civil rights in the forefront in our poverty reduction strategies. Yes, please. Hi. Um, although in most cases human rights and democracy are obviously critical to overcome poverty, um, there are cases where um, countries with uh, non-democratic -de countries with human rights problems have uh, made significant progress 
in overcoming poverty, such as uh, China, who I don't know the exact figure, but I think something like 80% of the population has been brought out of poverty. Um, do you think it's problematic that uh, the problems have been tackled in this order? Thank you. Well, thank you for raising this because I think what we have seen in many parts of Asia has been a tremendous uh, shift, taking people out of poverty, as you said. It's now the figure, I think you're correct, about 80% in China today. I think it was in, in uh, less than three decades, it was only 10%. Then the figures were totally different. 80% were living in, in real poverty. So it's tremendous what the global economy and, and changes have, have done to making people feed themselves. Uh, uh, but that, that, that's why I think it's so important in our development cooperation to see that we also strive for democracy and human rights values. Why? Well, my own findings. Uh, sometimes I see in some rapidly growing economies that those people that are marginalized might be religious minorities, might be uh, people with other sexual orientation or people who are disabled are perhaps even more marginalized because the society is not brought together and you have no accountability because there's a lack of expression of views, it's a lack of, democ of a democracy and accountability. That frightens me a little bit because we just measure if more and more people are feeding themselves. But I think that's not enough. I think you need more than food. You need freedom in order to make the whole society to develop. And that's why I think when we are interfering with the development assistance, we would have some strings attached to that uh, in order to have sustainable poverty reduction that is benefiting for all, specifically those that in one way or another are part of a minority or are marginalized. Thank you. Hi. Um, you mentioned Northern Africa and Libya. Now we're watching, or we're observing quite grave violation of human rights there. When, when is it for us to intervene? As in you said, you mentioned the moral obligation of the Western countries. When, when is it time for us to intervene, or are, should we intervene? Thank you. Is this the $10 <laughs> billion question, or what do you call it in English? Well, you mentioned I, Libya, so. Yes, I mentioned Libya, it's a, it's, a, it's a very good question. I think that from my point of view as Minister for Development Cooperation, I think it's very important to also see that building a society must come from within. And perhaps you think that I'm not supportive enough to those brave people, but I said in my speech that they deserve our respect, they deserve our support, and that they feel that we stand with them against their oppressors. But the question is now, can we do the job for them? Can we intervene, and how? And I think the line between supporting and intervening are very thin, isn't it? But what to do then? I mean, I'd be happy as soon as Gaddafi leaves but can we take him away? And how would that look like? That's the problem. Uh, and that's why I think we are prepared to support the people, to help them that are now fleeing the country and having humanitarian assistance and preparedness 
as well as in these closed societies, also helping human rights defenders and so on and so forth. It's extremely difficult. But I think that we can't just go in there and do the job because that would only be to eliminate perhaps a few persons or well, whatever you are suggesting. You are not suggesting anything, but just to think about that. And, and I, I'm afraid that that will lead us wrongly. But it's, of course, extremely painful to follow Al Jazeera, to follow, and also to have understanding that we lack information what's actually taking place within that country. That's why I so much emphasize modern technologies. In order for everyone to be civil rights defenders and to perhaps not only document the oppressions, but also to be able to let the world know about them, to see that someday there will come justice. That has actually proven to be a very good signal to those that now are responsible there, and that's why some diplomats and others are resigning, because they know that one day justice will come. So again, I think what we try to do, from my point of view, is rather to see how can we support, how can we use modern technology, how can we try to give a voice and to keep the political pressure, but to intervene more concretely, no. Somebody, I don't know who was the first between the two of you. Yeah, I had a question on um, EU's uh, promotion of democracy and human rights um, in Africa. And I was wondering how the EU reacts to um, rising Chinese presence in the African region, uh, which clearly undermines um, European development aid since it doesn't attach any conditionality. So the African states now can choose between the EU and China and China seems to kind of take the overhand and undermines um, EU's promotion of democracy. And I was wondering, how does the EU respond to this? You, can, you, also, you had a question to ask? Please, the next yeah, well, it's kind of the same question. Uh, and uh, wondering if basically this response, if that would um, maybe force the West and the EU to change its direction and maybe not push conditionality. It's just um, sometimes I feel that we perhaps measure a little bit different within the European Union on um, how much we would like to emphasize democracy in our relation to third countries. Uh, Sweden was having our, the presidency of the European Union in 2009, and that was the first time we adopted council conclusions of the need of democracy in third types of relations and also to develop this in our development cooperation. Um, so I think we have come quite far, specifically with our soft power and quite a lot of money. But how do African leaders judge this when the Chinese are coming there and doing it in a little bit different fashion? It depends on. It looks different in different countries, different uh, uh, occasions. But I think EU should really not shy away from our values and how we develop, for example, health infrastructure together with the poor people and that we also link that with the role of women and their needs to have for example sexual reproductive health and rights it is a package 
And sometimes I have the feeling that if the citizens of many of those African countries where we now see very aggressively Chinese investments and Chinese soft loans, but also Chinese taking out a lot of work opportunities and, and not acting very responsible, as I see it, if we look to European standards about how to develop, do development assistance. I think it's important then to have this kind of question and not to let EU do the same, but rather to challenge the leaders in Africa and ask what is, is long-term development cooperation and how do we work together. Having said that, I think it's very important to also underline the need for South-South cooperation. We can't not prohibit China to ha have an interest in Africa. That's not what I'm saying. But I think it's very, very important in these kind of countries also to raise the dialogue with the Chinese representatives about human rights, to talk about what creates long-term development assistance, and also, of course, to have these kind of talks also with Africans' leaders within the framework of African Union or elsewhere where we meet each other. So my short answer is EU should not shy away from our position. We should rather point it even more explicitly and also ask the, the people in these countries what are their opinion, what do they like most of all. And you have probably noticed that sometimes Chinese guest workers and Chinese projects are not always very appreciated by the people in some African countries. Where am I now? <laughs> I think it was somewhere, wait. Right, yeah. Hi, um, I want to commend you for your focus on the technology, but unfortunately, um, when we focus on the technology, just like Secretary Clinton did, um, we tend to focus on free expression. But what we forget is that in a number of these countries, what was happening was instead of shutting off the internet, these governments were monitoring the internet. And so as you work with these technology developers, I'd like you to remind them of that in the same way that European technology enabled the Iranian government to spy on the opposition movement. Uh, European technology may well have assisted these other governments as well. Thank you for reminding us about it's a two-side story, isn't it? Uh, the same way that we can see that this is a very important tool for having much more of mass communication, it could also be a very, very distinct uh, tool for oppression and for those that would like to oppress and to much easier detect and find democratic activists. Uh, and this has been very much debated. I'm not, what I see is the potential and of course also the risks. But it's just to highlight and the technology that I think should be recognized in these days. And also, as you said, well, if we know about this, can we develop even better instruments? Could we use internet entrepreneurs? Could we use um, human rights defenders? Could we try to see that we develop tools and uh, knowledge about how to avoid to be detected, but also to learn how to use these kind of methods uh, that could be very, very helpful? Uh, my point of view is really to see what's now happening and the opportunities to know about the risk, but never to forget that the strive for freedom and the human being is the key thing, not the technology. It has always been hard for civil rights defenders, for, for, for human rights defenders, for democratic activists and so on and so forth. And many of them, as I said, risk their lives for what they believe in. Uh, so, but the potential we have seen these days 
I think really should be recognized because it's a new phenomena and I think it's telling us a lot about the future and we have simply to adapt to that and to encompass this because I think it is a good opportunity. If I may abuse the, the chair, uh, my position as the chair, uh, one of the problems on accountability um, is that there's, in a way it's asymmetric. That is, the donors are asymmetric, they are accountable to their voters, while as the recipients are accountable to both donors and their voters. And it's been suggested by some that because of that, the fact that these new democracies especially, uh, in the, in they're trying to be accountable to donors, that this undermines their own accountability to their voters. How does, say, a, a democratic donor like Sweden reconcile that, that resolve that asymmetry? Well, to talk about the, the to, to be more and more aware about this is something that I think in some of those highly donor-dependent countries have really made the link between the citizens and the governments been very weakened because governments are tied up with talking to donors and not trying to raise the awareness, the capacity and the uh, acknowledgement and inclusiveness from their own citizens. We are breaking with development assistance, we should be aware about what I think this is a dilemma. Uh, and that's why we started to debating this in Sweden quite seriously because there is a serious problem not only about accountability, but also that other people's money might be misused. And there is a high risk also for corruption in development assistance that is also undermining democratization. We started to debate this in my country, and that's why we came up with this idea that we must be more transparent. We must tell the people in the villages that this is how much money spent to your government in the capital, and you could count yourself to try to ask where is the money, what happened to them, and we didn't see anything in my village. That's how the transparency thinking goes around. And that's also a way of trying to strengthen accountability. But this is a dilemma of development assistance that we must be aware of. And I have not a golden answer to that, as you heard, Professor. <laughs> and perhaps you could come up with some <laughs> great ideas. But I think just to be aware about these risks Okay. is something that actually perhaps also would, would help us and that's a big challenge also for donors to act more accordingly to this and also to, to, to uh, live up to many of those prim principles that we do have to act much more coherently as donors. Yeah, please. Well, since you're near there, but next, there and then and here. Okay. <laughs> no, the, the lady there. Hi. Uh, you mentioned uh, MDGs very briefly and you spoke about how they are very statistically driven right now. They are very target based. And uh, I mean, right now, MDGs as they stand, they lack the incorporation of the rights you talked about, like human rights and democracy. And it is a fact that MDGs are driving a lot of aid around the world. So do you think that MDGs as they stand right now, they are lacking uh, in, in, in the way that they, they do not mention these rights and when they come to an end in 2015, do you think a country like Sweden would advocate for incorporation of a rights-based approach into MDGs? Do you think that is important, if at all? Thank you. Thank you. Uh, and, and I hope you also hear because you are 
many of you do study international relations and also very knowledgeable in, in development assistance and also the MDGs I think should be recognized because they are a set of targets that one could be measured towards and I think they played an important role but I think they are not end of story there will come something after 2015 and it's also something that it's not for me enough you know we have to measure more than that uh, and that's why, again, I'm really obsessed by results in development cooperation, not only to measure the inputs and the outcome, but also to see how that this impact, does it move societies forward? And what about accountability, you know, that we talked about? And this is probably to have a set of these kind of principles, how they would look like, is a very interesting exercise, isn't it? Because what will the world need after 2015? Will mission be completed at that time? We will have no more poverty in the world. Probably we will continue to have some challenges out there. And how could we then agree upon a shared agenda where you have that some of us are donors and try to contribute as much as we can, but also to help those in the developing countries to do whatever they can to raise their own resources and to make an environment that are helpful for the people to come out of poverty by themselves. So how would that kind of set of values look like after 2015? For the moment, you should know that we, that are you know, kind of leaders of today, we haven't yet started to talk about what will happen after the MDGs. Why? Well, Sweden and UK, as donors, we would not like people to start to debate another thing until we have fulfilled the goals that we already do have set up. But I think it's soon getting time to start to have this kind of exercise, and I would be very happy to see influence and, and thinking from academia and perhaps also from people of a younger generation that also see that, well, it was good targets, but still a lot of things remains to be done. And the question is then, how do we do that? How do we identify the challenge and what's the way to lead to good results? Uh, so hopefully there will come some thinking out of this from here. Uh, and also I think that policymakers of today would really need to be challenged in that work. But Again, the MDGs has been a truly good achievement so far, but we can better. Um, you stress the importance of um, advocating for civil and political rights, and um, I was just wondering uh, what sort of response would this sort of agenda um, have for the businesses, EU businesses, that are currently facilitating uh, the dictatorships in many of the uh, states in Northern Africa, Middle East, that, uh, the ones that you even mentioned, what, what sort of, how would this agenda respond to the large businesses that are in contact with these dictatorships? Well, um, I think, again, Perhaps with new technology, new generations, not only voters but also consumers, and with more of transparency, perhaps we could ask those kind of questions not only here, but also towards those that sometimes are striving for the best conditions to earn some extra pennies, uh, and uh, perhaps also with their activities are um, making living conditions worse. Uh, using natural resources in an irresponsible way, uh, supporting perhaps dictators also to have some business uh, opportunities. 
That is one side of the coin. But the other side is as well as trade, exchange, global economy is the driving force of both combating poverty but also to see that there are inclusive growth. It could be a tool to see more of democratization and accountability. How do we influence businesses to be more responsible and less irresponsible? And I think we couldn't say that businesses is the same. I mean, it, you could have good examples and bad examples, can't you? Uh, and that's why I think that the work done so far with Global Compact, uh, the debate on corporate social responsibility, and more of awareness for consumers about during what circumstances is this uh, product made. Uh, what are the living conditions for those that works in that kind of factory? Uh, I think the knowledge and the transparency is something that I think new producers and coming consumers will ask much more about in the future if we are more aware about the differences in the world. Uh, then, of course, I should mention also that we, of course, in some parts also have very important and strong legislation, legislation against corruption, legislation about extradition of, of um, raw materials and so on and so forth. The problem sometimes, as far as I see it in Europe, is that sometimes there's kind of impunity and the lack of rule of law. So that's it's sometimes that irresponsible businesses can earn a lot of money because there are not yet enough of democracy and rule of law in order to make the market economy functioning better. It's a complex issue. It's a very good question. But I think it's not only about taking responsibility as a voter. It's also to see what is the power of the consumers and also here to ask for more about transparency in the global world economy. Um, thank you for your talk. Um, I was just wondering, from what I understand so far, <clears throat> excuse me, this developmental assistance sounds more like IMF structural adjustment program agenda, in a sense that um, countries should um, adopt individual property rights or liberalize their markets. I was just wondering, shouldn't there be a distinction between saying countries should work towards achieving MDGs than saying countries should go with liberalization or go with um, these liberal notions of economic um, understanding. So I was just wondering if you think these are just part of one big package or should there be distinction between those two? Thank you. I think, and Professor, you have studied this better than I, but I think I we have... <laughs> but I think, one, we need functioning Bretton Woods institutions, we need free trade in the world, we need a better functioning global economy with less gaps and more of inclusive growth that is sustainable. What is the precondition for that? Well, what I see specifically in Africa, where we still have a lot of poverty in the sub-Saharan Africa, is that regional markets do not function good enough. There are a lack of clearance about what's the property rights to make people have access to credits, to knowledge, to markets, weak infrastructure. There are so many components why we are having underdevelopment. And I think it is important to try to figure out how markets can work for the poor. And that, I think, is something where the leaders of many of those poorer countries well, they are rich perhaps in natural resources or in, in a young population, or, but they are underdeveloped. 
I think each and every one of those nations should look into how are our economies suited to be able to bring out the best of our society. And I do believe in functioning market economy with the rule of law and with democracy. I think that's the best way to have wealth creation and sustainable poverty reduction that are inclusive. You asked me if this is not like, well, IMF standards where we urge developing countries to privatize and where we ask them to take our set of rules in order to, to functioning better. Perhaps sometimes within the IMF there has been some mistakes made. But I think what we now know so far is that we need those institutions and also together with the World Bank there are capacities in order to see that there are more understanding about the weaknesses and where we have to fill the gaps in the developing world, for example with aid for trade, building institutions, uh, but still not shy away from that, that many of those countries that are dig deep down to donor development, uh, donor um, dependency, do not have enough functioning markets that works for the poor. And I think with our lessons learned, from the UK, from Sweden definitely, we could really show that this could be combined with a policy uh, that makes people uh, be much better off in all aspects of life and in all groups of society. Um, but again, I think accountability there and transparency and functioning democracy is also a cornerstone of this kind of, you may call it therapy. Uh, Wolf Gärtner, visiting professor at LSE. Um, you said at the very beginning that uh, food first, voting after is nonsense. And I must say I'm a bit worried about this. Imagine a woman in Africa who badly needs food to feed her children. I think she would uh, consider this and see this differently. But let me make the following two points. I've run questionnaire experiments with several uh, at several uh, West uh, European uh, universities where the issue was between a program, a wide program of uh, uh, promoting growth, economic growth, or the reinstallment of basic human rights. And I must say the answers of my students, as I said at different universities, were quite divided. So were they wrong? And the second point is that when I was talking to my, or some of my colleagues in China, um, they were very proud of the development which they have made over the last 15 years. They said, of course we know we don't have human rights, we don't have democracy, but look that many people have improved the situation quite considerably. There is still poverty, clearly, but we have made tremendous achievements and I must say that we are proud of what we have achieved. So my worry is whether your statements, and I would say I sympathize with lot, lots of your statements, are perhaps typically the statements of an outside observer and not of a person who is involved. Thank you. But why I mention this is that I think too long time people that deal with development assistance have overlooked the need to also, while doing development assistance, bring in democratization and ask for accountability. We have been so happy 
with just providing shelter, food, and trying to build institutions that could help the poor people. I, I'm, as I said, I'm, I'm, I'm absolutely convinced that societies that have freedom will, in a long-term perspective, for example, China, I think if that country just continues to be so-called stable with uh, a really aggressive market economy, isn't it? Uh, with quite a lot of disparity between those that are well off and those that are still rather poor, it is a challenge for that society in the long term. But it also might be an economic disadvantage because I think in free and pluralistic societies, ideas can flow freely, new innovations can be adapted, and good thinking can come true to more than just a few. That's why I think democracies in the long term do have comparative advantages, not only from a moral, philosophical, political point of view, but also from an economical point of view. And as I said before, I've seen too many countries that have good growth and are happy about that, but think that that's enough. But where they're marginalized, those people that are having other sexual orientation and so on and so forth are perhaps even more poor than they were before the economic growth took place. And I think, from my point of view, I think if we all sitting here said that, well, it's enough tonight, if we now, we leave this room because we should not no longer assemble, we can go and have a good beer, but we are not allowed to drink beer together more than two of us, because if we are ten, we will be not allowed to do that. And by the way, your internet access will of course still be there, but you will be supervised. I think we would say that's we, we can't stand that. And sometimes, as me, from perhaps looking from things from outside, I will continue to fight that we sometimes think that poor people do not asking for the same rights as we are asking for, that they are in one way different, and that they are happy just enough to feed themselves. I think they are in vain and despair because they can't explain that they are not happy enough only by eating. They would like to do something more. They would like to be independent, to be able to raise their own lives, to take their own responsibility for their own destiny and helping each other. And that's why, because it is not only that I'm looking from this from outside, it is actually also when going out there, meeting the people, they are very capable. They know that they need food to survive and that their kids need good nutrition and health and water and sanitation, and they are despairing that they don't have enough. But look to these Afghan women that went for a vote. Look to these people that are queuing in, 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 I shouldn't say weeks, but I mean the will to take political responsibility to go for a vote and to ask for democracy and accountability is so strong in the world today. And I think it's growing. Uh, and I would like to stand on that side of development because I think too long time we who have done development assistance have been very, very happy with our helping hand, giving out food and thinking that that's enough. But from my point of view, it isn't enough. It's not sustainable and it would not change societies. And that's why I'm so stubborn on democratization in development assistance. But there are not many of us that are taking this viewpoint. Still there is a huge understanding about that we we shouldn't interfere. We shouldn't have so much of conditionality. There are other donors that are more efficient in providing with food and roads. 
let be. But for me, I have higher ambitions. We have a very generous development assistance in Sweden, but it's also very ambitious and very, very demanding. Well, uh, <laughs> time as your usual runs out. Uh, we have, we can take one more question, I think. And I didn't, uh, I'm sorry, I've been looking, I've been sort of, <laughs> I happen to have He's a, from Scandinavia. Uh, then, then we skip that, okay. <laughs> Thank you for your very inspiring speech, Minister, and uh, answering all our questions. Um, I am interested in, interested in um, how the Swedish government is now very much pushing for accountability and that's also something that's happening in this country. Um, but we also, I think, throughout the discussion have realized that the, this game of accountability uh, could sometimes lead to conflict in demands and that the power structure is quite asymmetrical. Um, and I was just wondering for how, um, what the role of public participation in Sweden, for example, how that could contribute um, to overcoming these kind of uh, conflicting demands coming from accountability. And maybe that you could comment on what your role as a development minister in achieving such participa participation from the Swedish population or uh, who should accomplish uh, that discussion. Well, I, I could start with having another lecture about Swedish experiences about openness and transparency, but also to see how I think that if people are well informed, when they think, when they know that they can participate, not only by voting, but also by asking for accountability and follow and to be well informed, I think they will take much more interest in how the society develops. How is money spent? Who did the decision? How come this service didn't work good enough? And also perhaps bringing out if we do it like this, or I can also have an idea, I can contribute, I can dialogue, I can also hold politicians accountable. This is the new thing now with information technology. I think that we can have a, a, a new, at least that's my hope in Sweden, that we also can, with learning more about this new technology, could have much more of an inclusive democracy where people could be even more informed and to know much more about how the budget spendings are done, uh, why that road was there and not there. We have this kind of transparency in Sweden, but I think more with using the modern technology. And we have also seen examples here in the UK of more about telling about the public expenditure, what it was used for, and how you could ask for for, for accountability. When it comes to development assistance, I think this kind of transparency initiative and asking for much more of accountability is, for me, also a way of having better le legitimacy so that people know about the challenges and obstacles and problems that is with development assistance, that they are aware about the risks and that they know why we are doing things, but that they also can thereby better follow not only the money but also the decisions. And what we have done so far also to have better accountability is to see that we opened up our development assistance, also asking others to join in, to come with their ideas, to see can we use businesses better, to see what are the links. You know, Ericsson in Sweden, you know these mobile phones. They are actually more active in the world than development assistances. Can I learn something from them? Do they know things about fighting corruption that I, I can learn more about? 
that, that is a, a, a classical example. But another is how can I invite information technology experts together with the democratic activists to see what is the top knowledge about how can you help the democracy fighters to, to get rid of the oppressors and continue to um, finding what's happening now in those closed societies where we are really as politicians but also as citizens are really unhappy about that we know too little about what's happening in Libya today. And do we know enough how we can support those people? And should we intervene or not to have this public debate? And that's why, again, I, I, I thank you for all your good questions and remarks. But what I really try to stress today is the need of understanding the new technologies, how they can transform the world and to help us to bring out the best of, of, of people and to see how people together can make changes in the world and that we have to see that development assistance that are actually accountable for quite a lot of money can be more innovative, can be more relevant, and also can be more accountable for being an actor of change. And that's why I was really, really happy to see all of you here tonight, because this also proves another thing. You are much more occupied than I was when I was a student, and I never had the opportunity to study here, perhaps later, I don't know. <laughs> uh, but it is not only about being at the internet, being well informed, reading, listening, but it's also to meeting, to see each other, to know that this is a fundamental thing we all need to do. To listen to each other, to see each other's eyes, to see that do we understand, do we agree or disagree, but also to have these kind of meetings and that you took your time to meet with me tonight uh, and to be able to, with you, listen to your questions, understanding what you ask for and also your thinking about how future development cooperation would look like. I, I really appreciate it to see you all here tonight and that you spared this hour. Thank you so much. <laughs>